0: Thank you Jonathan for your gracious welcome. It's simply great to be back at Wodonga. You don't know how many times I've thought about you and prayed for you and look forward to catching up with you again and uh, I'm so uh, glad that this moment has come when uh, Graham and Karen have uh, wanted to follow the Lord through the waters of baptism and and my friend Jonathan has graciously invited me to to come and uh, speak and uh, do the actual baptism. I think it's always of interest, isn't it, how people come to the church in the first place. And I'll never forget uh, when Grace came into my office and she said to me, there's a gentleman outside who wants to know what is the political stance of the Wodonga Baptist Church? And I thought, well, that's the most interesting question I've been asked since I've been here. So I invited uh, Graham into the office and uh, I gave him a little bit more than the political stance uh, of the church. I didn't know what that was, actually, but uh, (laughs) I did know what we stood for, anyway. And uh, the thing that intrigued me was both he and Karen had been seeking to find some answers to what life is about, particularly life's purpose, and uh, what led them to come to the Wodonga Baptist Church was the sight of all the cars pouring in on a Sunday morning. They felt that uh, there must be something going on in that church when so many cars were coming on for Sunday. And From that moment we met, Graham and Karen and I have become very, very real friends. Uh, We even went down to Melbourne to see Hawthorne play Melbourne. (laughs) And uh, to to Graham's consternation, Hawthorne won. (laughs) And to my amazement, I might add, Hawthorne won that day because I fully expected uh, Melbourne to win. So, our dear friends are going to uh, share a witness, and I'm going to invite Graham now, if he will, and Karen to come to the stage, and Graham will share with us what's on his heart as he and Karen prepare for baptism.
1: Thank you, Norman. It seems like a uh, long time since I've addressed an audience, so I hope you'll forgive me as I use some notes to overcome what nowadays is a pretty lousy memory. I hail from Southport, Queensland, and am the third of uh, five curry offspring. My life's journey to salvation has been one of searching for a real purpose for my life, As early as I can remember, I wanted to be accepted as a honourable man, which was a good resolution, but also a high achiever in a competitive world, which is not such a good resolution for a young bloke's life journey. In sport, which I love, and as Norman mentioned, I wore the States Guernsey as a footballer, yet it didn't give me any lasting satisfaction. After my high school, I topped my study years in a chosen profession of marketing. Yet again, no lasting satisfaction. I must really have learnt nothing, because my thirst for status continued throughout my career. Which includes 30 years of marketing and five national marketing awards, still no lasting satisfaction. I had the thrill of heading up the marketing for World Expo 88, yet the day after it was over, I can't remember ever feeling so flat. Yet again, no lasting satisfaction. In truth, after Expo 88, I felt quite depressed. But then it all changed. For the first time, my restless and somewhat meaningless self-centered life, I decided to face up to my restlessness and seek a real purpose for life. I met Karen here in Aubrey Odonga in those early nineties, and we married in 1998. And with my dear wife Karen, we found what we believe was lacking in both our lives. And that, dear friends, is spiritual inspiration. We both believe that God had guided us to Donga District Baptist Church, to firstly our great friends, Norman and Jonathan, and then to the wonderful church family that is the Wodonga District Baptist Church. As God ordained, our dear friend Norman happened to be on duty at our first searching visit to the church on that Monday in October 2004. And the following Sunday, we began the journey towards spiritual fulfilment. Both Jonathan and Norman have helped us to rekindle our commitment to Jesus Christ, a commitment which has lain fallow for so many years. Then the 40 days of purpose, that helped us enormously. And Karen and I asked Jonathan for his blessing to have Norman baptise us so that we could continue our spiritual journey. I'd like to quote Ephesians six, fifteen to seventeen. The shoes
2: put on, on the peace
1: that comes with the good, good news, so that, that you prepared. will be paired.
2: In every, in every battle, battle, we
1: battle, battle we need a faith as your shield to, shield to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you, at you by Satan. Put, put your salvation in your, in your helmet and take, take the, the spirit of, the sword of, of the spirit, spirit which is the Word of God. We wish wish to to dedicate dedicate our our lives to the the service service of our Lord. Lord. Dear Dear Lord, Lord, we're now ready to serve serve your your great purpose.
0: purpose. Karen, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, have you accepted Him? As the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, I have. On this confession of your faith, Karen, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the son of God. Have you accepted him as the forgiver of your sins and the leader in your life? I have. Graham on this confession of your faith I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit. Just
2: and Matthew chapter 7 and Norman is continuing on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount and we only have just a few more messages to go but if you turn to Matthew 7 verse 24 and what you'll notice just so you all realize what's going on we had Stuart Robinson come uh, last week And so the order has changed a little bit in that Norman's now preaching from uh, chapter 7 verses 24 uh, onwards about building on a solid foundation. And then um, next week we'll continue it on back from um, the narrow gate in verse 13 and we'll just go back to that as well. You with me in all that? Hopefully. Let's read God's word together shall we from uh, Matthew chapter 7 I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the, water, and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on rock. But anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will fall with a mighty crash. And we look forward to God speaking to us as we open up our hearts this morning to hear what he has to say. Church, let's come together and pray. God, we want to thank you so much for the power of your love. For God, in your word, we see over and over again of your love for us. As John would describe you. He says, God is love. We just know that is who you are. We know that there's no greater love than this, that one would give his life for his friends. And God, you have sent your son. You have come in the flesh and died on a cross for us. You have demonstrated your love love for us in the clearest emphatic way we just want to say god we see it we understand it and your word just tells us that for you loved us so much that you sent your only son that whoever believes in you should not perish but have eternal life and this morning god because of your love because of your son we are those who have a certain hope That this life is not all that there is. That one day when our life ends, we'll go to be with you. Not through our good works or through all the things that we've done. But through our faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus. Oh God, help us to be able to grasp with all the other saints how wide and how long and how deep is your love. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. God, help us to know the power of your love each day in our lives. God, we want to acknowledge your love this morning in Graham and Karen's lives. Thank you for their public declaration of their faith in you and their understanding of your love for them. God, thank you that they have found purpose in life where they could never find it before in you, Lord Jesus. God, thank you as we've heard their prayer of just dedicating the rest of their lives to serving you. God, may they continue to know your love God, thank you for Norman, who's with us today. And we just thank you that as we've grown to know him, we've understood your love as we've seen it in his life. And thank you for him coming to share with us this morning. God, we do want to pray now. God, there are some things that we just want to lift up to you this morning. And we want to pray this morning for Lisa Stanley's friend who just last night in a car accident, Um, has been hurt and is in critical care in New Zealand. God, we would just pray for her now. We pray for Lara. God, we know that she loves you. And we pray right now she would be just experiencing your presence right there in that emergency room, in the critical care room. And God, we just pray that uh, now she would be getting the best of help. And God, that you would be helping to bring a miracle about in this situation. Bring healing, we pray. God, we want to pray for Trish Swaby this morning and just ask that you would be continually working in her body. Give her strength, give her courage, give her faith that looks to you every day. And God, we pray that you would be healing her. God, we surrender to your will and commit her to you. God, we pray for the continuing of our church extensions. We thank you for those that are giving their time and their energy and all of their resources, voluntarily so many, to help uh, build our church and to continue to finish the extensions. God, we thank you for them. We pray for diligence and uh, skill. And God, we pray that we would continue to see you providing all that we need to complete those extensions. God, we pray for today as our church meets together in homes. God, this is just like the early church did in Acts 2, where people shared together and they had fellowship together and they, and they shared over a meal. Oh God, we just pray today would be a great day and that so many relationships would be strengthened and deepened for you. God, thank you that you've come, that we might have life and have it to the full. We love being part of your family, part of your children. We pray that our lives will continue to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit that will lead to people seeing you at work in our lives and people seeing uh, people blessed. Oh God, it's great to be in your house this morning. Now as we come to hear your word, we say, God, speak. Your church is listening. We're listening. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: There were two elderly people living in a mobile home park. He was a widower and she was a widow. They'd known each other for a short while and one evening there was a community supper in the big activity room. They were sitting at the same table across from one another As the meal went on, he made a few admiring glances at her and finally gathered up the courage to say to her, will you marry me? (laughs) After about six seconds of careful consideration, he answered, yes, yes, I will. The meal ended and with a few more pleasant exchanges, they went to their respective places. Next morning, he was troubled. Did she say yes or did she say no? <laughs> he couldn't remember. Try as he could, he just could not recall. Not even a faint memory. With trepidation, he went to the telephone and called her. First he explained that he didn't remember things as well as he used to. Then he reviewed the lovely evening past. As he gained a little more courage... He then inquired of her, When I ask you if you would marry me, what did you say? Was it yes or did you say no? He was delighted to hear her say, Why, I said yes, yes, I will, and I meant it with all my heart. Then she continued, And I'm glad that you called this morning, because I couldn't remember who it was who asked me. <laughs> Now, I'm sorry I had to share that with you because (laughs) because, uh, afterwards people are going to greet me and I'll know their face and I'll be... (laughs) But it's two years and a quarter since I left, you know, so it's not going to be easy to recall every name, but you know I love you all, whether I know your name or not. In London's Highgate Cemetery, a huge granite pillar stands on top of the grave of Karl Marx. On it is a, on the, on on the site a bust of Marx, his cheeks puffed out, his eyes set deep and resolute. Chiselled on the granite is the dictum of the father of communism. The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Christians agree with Karl Marx. The world still needs to be changed. The question remains, how? In the passage that Jonathan read to us, Jesus is highlighting the essential foundation of a new society. Jesus speaks of a house built upon a rock. That rock is not the rock of rules by which society is to be regulated. It is to be a society to be built upon Jesus and his teaching. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise, said Jesus. The house built on the sand is as costly to build as the one built on the rock but the one stands and the other does not. Jesus and his teaching become the solid rock upon which we can find the durable foundation for a new society. What would these words of Jesus signify to people hearing them for the first time? Remember, the people of Israel were living under the bondage of a superior power. For over 300 years, they'd gone through a succession of events from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from great courage to strength, from strength to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency to weakness and from weakness back to bondage now like pawns on a chessboard they lived under the bondage of a superior power crying out for a deliverer subconsciously no doubt they were asking the perennial question is civilization progress It's a frightening fact of history that the average age of the world's great civilizations has been approximately 200 years. According to that timing, the Western world may be living on borrowed time. The age old revolving door is turning and we're moving in a historical cycle towards spiritual bondage again. It doesn't take a meteorologist to predict rain if the sky is black and drops are starting to fall. Nor does it take a prophet to predict future bondage if we're an apathetic and selfish society. Into such a scene comes Jesus claiming anyone who listens to my teaching is wise. In his own person Jesus laid the foundation of the new society he came to establish. He broke down all the barriers that might have divided people. When he chose Simon the Zealot as a disciple, he broke down political barriers. By dining with Zacchaeus, he ignored class barriers. In talking with a woman of Samaria, He put aside social barriers. In heeding the appeal of the Syrophoenician woman and praising the faith of the Roman centurion, he bypassed racial and national barriers. He allowed a woman known to be a sinner to touch him, quietly forgetting the barrier of reputation. A poor widow gave her might And he held her up for praise, ignoring economic barriers. When his disciples' feet were dirty, he washed them, obviating the barrier between master and servant. Yet when the disciples criticised a follower who did not belong to their group, he rebuked them for their intolerance, setting aside denominational barriers. As a baby, an old man rejoiced in him. The young man, children flocked to him. He crossed the gaps of of the ages. He was a bridge across troubled waters. His love was never stopped by a wall. Not only in his person, but also in his teaching does Jesus give us the foundation to a new society. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise, said Jesus. Do we really have the wisdom to listen to Jesus' teaching and to take it seriously? Words of Jesus, such as those contained in the Sermon on the Mount and summed up in the challenge contained in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord when you won't obey me? Or other teachings of Jesus, such as John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. I command you to love one another. In our lifetime, we'll never exhaust the depth of meaning and the relevance of the teaching of Jesus for our personal lives as well as for society. A personal exercise I've undertaken in my own devotional life in recent times is to take the words of Jesus and ask, how do these words apply to my life? And am I really making the application? Seriously? We can become so familiar with the words of Jesus that no longer do they penetrate and help us to be obedient. In the illustration Jesus uses, he's speaking about two kinds of responses to him and his words. Both of these builders have been confronted by Jesus. The wise man builds his house on the rock which represents a life established on the teaching of Jesus. The foolish man listens to the message of Jesus, rejects it, goes his own way and builds his house on sand. He does not intentionally build a house he thinks is going to fall. Both builders have confidence their houses will stand. But one man's confidence is in Jesus and his teaching. The other man is in in himself. No educated person today can fail to be impressed with the staggering achievements we have witnessed in our lifetime. But at the same time, no thinking person can look at the world without being depressed by our failure to solve our deepest problems. What's wrong with the world when, on the same day, our newspapers carry front-page stories of man's flight into space and at the same time feature the plight of millions of people facing starvation? What's wrong with the world when promises are not enough and we must have contracts? when doors are not enough and we must have locks? What's wrong with the world when science, which has solved so many problems, seeks at the same time to cure cancer and a way to destroy the world? What's wrong with the world when governments and business and labour produce an affluent society but cannot cope with the spiralling rates of crime, suicide, drug addiction, marriage breakup, and moral breakdown. As Winston Churchill noted when he received the Nobel Prize, we've learned to control everything except man. Moral aspirins and political pills cannot solve our problems. We've been building on sand. What we need is radical surgery for the cancer of the soul. As a wise man observed long ago, a man who goes out to change the world must be an optimist. But the man who goes out to change the world with some, without some way of changing human nature is an absolute lunatic. Jesus diagnosed our basic problem. It is the thought life that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They are what defile you. And make you unacceptable to God. And to make us acceptable to God, Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. By the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, God has made it possible to wipe the slate clean and to free those who receive Him from the crippling paralysis of guilt. He came into Palestine some 2,000 years ago to replace our human sinful nature with his inner divine power upon which a new society alone can be built. To today's world longing for a new kind of society, Jesus offers a strategy for change. Luke's recollection of some of this same incident records Jesus saying, "I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then obeys me. It is like a person who builds a house on a strong foundation laid upon the underlying rock. When the flood waters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it is well built." First, we must come to him. I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me. This is his invitation, open to everyone. Come to me. Apart from him, life is a meaningless gamble and any effort to find fulfilment without him is like trying to build a house on sand. Second, we must respond to his teachings. I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching and obeys me. People who respond to Jesus are changed. The Christian solution for changing society is to change people. Each person must face the fact that we are part of the world's problem, recognise the failure and self centeredness of our personal life, Then receive the power of the living Christ to enable us to change and to keep on responding to his teaching. Too often, evangelicals have stressed the necessity of a conversion experience so strongly that converts keep looking back to what happened when they first responded to Jesus' invitation to come to him. Instead of asking the question, what happens next? Because there's always something to follow for the Christian. We've sometimes said too blithely the best way to change the world is to get people converted. That states an important truth, but taken by it itself, it can be misleading. Coming to Jesus is only the start of a long, lifelong process of responding to his teaching. That's why Graham and Kieran have presented themselves for believers' baptism this morning. They've come to understand that this is what Jesus would have them do as the next step of obedience. Believers' baptism is our Lord's request and we would obey him. Jesus said, "'Go then to all people everywhere.'" And make them my disciples, baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. His faintest wish is our command. His first request of you after you've come to him and received him into your life is to follow him in confessing your commitment to him in baptism. Baptism. And Jesus' teaching goes further. One day, Jesus took his men to a mountain and he asked them, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. The foundation of the church would be Jesus Christ himself, and on him would be built all who confess with Peter. That he is the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. Then Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. In other words, the true Christian is willing to put what Christ asks of him or her as the first priority through the community of the church whatever it costs. Robert Kennedy once said, few men are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is rarer than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential vital quality for those who seek to change the world which yields most painfully to change. The only validation we can ever have of salvation is a life of obedience. On the walls of the Cathedral of Lübeck in Germany is an engraving which reads like this. Thus speaketh Christ our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. The house built on the rock is a life of obedience. It empties itself of self-righteousness and pride and is filled with remorse over its own sin. The house on the sand is composed of human opinions and attitudes which are not always which are always shifting and unstable to build on sand is to build on self will self fulfillment self purpose self sufficiency self satisfaction self righteousness the most tragic difference between the builders is their final outcomes. The test of our life's building comes when the storms of life confront us, and they do. Storms of grief, storms of temptation, storms of economic failure, storms of disappointment, storms of despair. Those whose foundation for life is established on a rock-like basis stands firm because the house is well built. Those whose foundations for life is established on shifting sands crumble into a heap. What protection is provided for those who face life's storms who have built their lives on the rock of ages. A young man of 16 was attracted to a barn in Ireland, where a man named James Morris was preaching. Six months after this young man was born, his father died, and he was reared by his mother, who was a devout Christian, who took him on a holiday to Ireland? Attracted to the barn that night in Ireland, mainly by the novelty of it, Augustus Toplady found, and heard John Morris speaking on the verse found in Ephesians 2:17. You who were sometimes far off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. Under that message, he later wrote, Under that message I was, I trust, brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Strange that I who had not so long who had sat so long under the means of grace in England should be brought by the blood of Christ in an obscure part of Ireland amidst a handful of God's people met together in a barn and under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his own name. I shall remember that day to all eternity. In later years, top lady now and an Anglican minister, sheltering from an enormous storm in the county of two huge limestone crags on Burrington Crag in England thought of that night of the barn in Ireland. Yes, he'd been far off in those days, a long way from home, lost in the storm, but he'd been made nigh. He'd been brought near to God, gathered in a given shelter from the storms that threatened, made nigh by the blood of Christ. The thought captivated him. He could not shake it off. All the way home, he thought of the rock, the rock in which he'd sheltered in Burrington Craig, the rock in which his soul had found refuge 10 years earlier. And in returning home, he sat down and wrote, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister of the day, thought it was the greatest hymn ever written in any language. He translated it into Latin, Greek and Italian. Top Lady was only 37 when he died. He called for his Bible and he himself selected the verses that were to be read to him. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was still sheltering in the rock, the rock of ages. And even in the last fierce storm, his soul's sure refuge did not fail him. The response to this magnificent discourse of Jesus concludes the passage. When Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught us one who had real authority and quite unlike the teachers of religious law. The word amazed literally means, figuratively, of being struck in the mind, of being astounded. The crowd was literally dumbfounded by the power of what Jesus said. They'd never heard such comprehensive insightful words of wisdom, depth, and profundity. They never listened to such a fearful warning of the consequences of turning away from God. But the most remarkable thing that struck the audience that day was that Jesus was teaching them as one having authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pictures himself as the one who has the authority to settle the eternal destiny of men and women. Recently, a friend of mine was talking to a university student. They got into discussion about the Christian faith. My friend explained that if he committed his life to Christ, he had to mentally move over and let Christ take the centre. The young man thought for a moment and then blurted out, I'm very reluctant for this decentralisation. That is a magnificent up-to-date term for conversion. Decentralisation. Nothing less than this is meant when a person becomes a Christian And lives as a Christian. It means a total way of life in which you move over and say, Jesus Christ, take control of the center of my life. He isn't a static Christ. He uh, He didn't ask us to tie ourselves to the history of hundreds of years ago. He's changing the world today by his gospel into a world of love and justice. And he wants to enlist each of us in his cause. Remember too, he's not an authoritarian Christ, though he has all authority. He will not force anybody to follow him. He will not stop us from building our house on sand, if that is our choice. He will not impose himself on us. But if we turn control of our lives over to him, we will find true freedom in his authority. But most of the people that day only watched and listened, They only heard and considered, but they did not decide. Even by not deciding, they decided for whatever reasons, possibly for no conscious reason at all. They continued to build their lives, their houses on sand. And what is the outcome of such a decision? Jesus said, anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods came and the winds beat against that house, it will fall with a mighty crash. (coughs) Haven't we seen that repeated again and again in our lifetime? On the other hand, Jesus said, anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on rock. In these final moments, let me ask you, On what are you building your life, rock or sand? Is Jesus Christ the very foundation of your life? Have you come to him? Are you taking him seriously, coming to terms with his teaching and responding to it in in obedience? Sandy is about to sing for us Top Lady's famous hymn, Rock of Ages. There is a verse in it which sums up succinctly how we must come to him. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. You see, all your accomplishments cannot merit your entrance into the kingdom of God. Graham and Karen found the purpose they were seeking in life when they set aside the pride of human achievement as the basis of their salvation and trusted themselves completely to Jesus and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and pledged themselves to follow him. Do you want to do that now? Then use the words of this hymn this morning as the prayer that brings you to Jesus and into his kingdom.